Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Help us in our understanding that we might live your truth, know your love, and share your goodness with all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I get concerned when a bride whose wedding I'm conducting pronounces that the day is going to be perfect. It brings to mind a story of a colleague of mine where it was the mother of the bride who was, to say the least, compulsive, obsessive compulsive. She wanted the wedding to be just perfect, and so she owned the entire ceremony. She planned the ceremony down to the last detail and checked and rechecked that, everything, that nothing had been overlooked. Of course, there had to be an orchestra. The, breast, the dress was breathtaking. The church was an architectural wonder. The flowers, the ceremony, the cake, the refreshments were all arranged under the very watchful eye of the mother of the bride. And that woman virtually harassed everybody, assuring that everything was going to be perfect and under control, under her control. Then comes the fateful day, the actual ceremony. At the moment when the bride arrived and she gathered in the reception room waiting with her father, she was nervous and she paced the tables picking up some nuts um, and then having a little cocktail and having a canopy. Uh, she was just getting ready to go in and just on her sw- swig of something. And so by the time she went in there, she'd visited every table that was in the reception waiting area. Then came the procession. The groomsmen were in place. The groom stood in front of the church alongside the minister awaiting his bride. The bridesmaids gracefully made their way in, down the aisle, took their places. Here was the bride's finest hour. As the bride and her father proceeded down the aisle, nobody noticed the color had completely gone from her face. Just as she reached the front of the church, everything that she'd eaten chose to depart her. She didn't, I don't mean she just coughed quietly into her hanky, but she literally hosed everyone. <laughs> The first to be baptized was her mother. As in that wedding story, all the details of transporting the ark to Jerusalem had been thought through and necessary preparations had been made, so it seemed. A new cart had been acquired to carry the ark some six miles or so east and a little to the south in Jerusalem to be a magnificent and grand occasion. And then tragedy strikes. Uzzah goes and dies in the middle of things, ruining David's plans. This is a fascinating chapter that I'd encourage you to read again at home and see what you make of the story. But by the time that we reach this point in David's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is consolidating his power as the king. He is the first to bring the tribes of Judah and Israel together. And he makes Jerusalem his capital. He was the first person to do that. It's a brilliant move because Jerusalem straddled the the geographic line between these tribes. He renames the the city of David. And herein was born 11 more children to him from various wives and concubines. If you look at the end of chapter 5, you will see that David has 
significantly, comprehensively defeated the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Now under David, here is a period of supremacy by the Jewish nation over their neighbors and the beginning of a dynasty of David that would last over 500 years. And so as we begin chapter 6, there's a real sense of pride and much to be celebrated. And so, to put the icing on the cake, David, we read, brings together 30,000 men to bring to his new capital the Ark of the Covenant. David remembers the Ark and the role it had played in the life of the people as they traveled in the wilderness and how it had led them in battle. The Ark, we discover, had been captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 and was housed in Kiriath-Jerim, sitting there for at least 20 years. But now David wants to place the ark at the center of the Jewish nation, thereby bringing religious and political power together, thereby demonstrating to one and all the centrality of God in David's kingdom. And so we get back to our story. The ark is placed on a new cart and this magnificent entourage sets off. Ah, but no, tragedy happens. At one point it appears the animals pulling the cart stumble and Uzzah appears from our reading, puts out a hand to stop the ark from, well what was going to happen? On touching the ark he dies. The procession comes to a screeching halt. Joy turns to amazement and bewilderment. And we read that David is angry with God. God, all this was done to honour you. Don't you understand? How can you strike dead someone who had looked after the ark and cares for it? There's much debate, as you can imagine, in biblical scholarship as regards why Uzzah dies. What actually was going on here? Uzzah was ritually unclean. Nakon, the threshing floor, was a dubious route to go. Instead of stumbling, some people think the word was dropping. The animals were dropping things. Um, Unwanted little parcels of... of, um, of animal waste, and so he he felt compelled to reach out and touch the ark. Let me remind you of the sacredness of the ark, because the issue is about the uncompromising holiness of God. Even the high priest was prohibited from entering the most holy place except on the Day of Atonement. The Lord said to Moses in Leviticus, Tell your brother Aaron, Aaron, not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Clearly, whenever one encounters the ark of the covenant, one encounters the presence of God. Uzzah could not plead ignorance. However, I think on closer examinations, we wrestle with it. We can't just say it's Uzzah's problem. The problem seems to lie with the whole procession and the community rather than that unfortunate individual. And maybe it grates on our ears, but there's a communal dimension to judgment here um, that grates on our present culture's individualistic sensibilities, perhaps. And so in haste, or perhaps in ignorance... David had not followed the correct procedure for moving the ark. We can read about that in Numbers 4 and 5. The ark was meant to be carried on poles. 
passed through supporting rings attached to the ark itself, and this balanced on the shoulders of the Levite priests who would carry it safely without bodily contact, but they would carry it. That was clearly said. It wasn't to be dumped as a piece of luggage on a cart, even if it was a new cart. With the carelessness of David and the intervention of Uzzah, it could appear that God is a trophy or that God needs humans' help. Now, the problem theologically with that is that Jews and Christians believe that God is all-powerful, all-self-sufficient in all God's ways, is holy, is set apart, doesn't need anyone else. The issue here is the absolute, uncompromising holiness of God. Thinking about that, I was challenged as I watched my kids and think, how do we teach holiness? reverent, deep reverence for who God is in practice. Think about it as we say the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. We say that. May your name be lifted up for you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the Lord Almighty. Or think of the times in the Old Testament when the people said, this is holy ground. We take our sandals off here. This is holy ground. Abraham met with God and he said, I am nothing but dust and ashes. What about us as we approach God in worship, the all-knowing one? In moving the ark, David is doing the right thing, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And yet, clearly, undeniably, his actions benefit his kingship. As the story of David unfolds, we see this man has many desires, one of which we'll speak of next Sunday. Some for God and some for himself. And in this chapter, I think those two aspects sit uncomfortably together if you look at that chapter. They're both happening side by side, sin and faith. A bit like our world, isn't it? David, the spiritual man after God's heart, who in his passion writes prayers, composes praise, who shows mercy to Meshibotheth, who establishes a kingdom based on God's truth and justice. David, the selfish man, calculating, brutal in his dealings with people. Look at the chapters around this one. Who practices deception and is willing even to go to murder to cover his own traps. And so when we get to the end of our chapter, if we jump to there, the bit about Michal, that's interesting as well. How do you read that dialogue between the two? I'd be interested to hear afterwards what you make of this, because again, we've got these two strains. David is exuberant in his worship. He's taken up in worship. Michal looks on and, and she questions that. And there are times when I read some of David's story, and some of what he writes in the Psalms. And I think, that's pretty partisan, that. David, you're pretty quick to say, I'm right, you're wrong, and you're evil. And yet, I'm someone that believes that God calls us to live all of our lives in worship and to invite God to lead us in exuberant praise. 
in this story, has David become part of, has, has God become part of David's kingdom and not vice versa? And you know the Depeche Mode song, Personal Jesus? Do you remember that one from 1987? Um, it's got that slow, languid kind of beat. Sorry, I won't sing it, I won't try to. But it's weary, detached, cynical vocals. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who cares. Reach out and touch faith. Your own personal Jesus. The song was actually written about somebody who went over the top in their love and adoration for Elvis. And at the last moment, the writer of the song changed it to Jesus. But it clearly speaks to us of a Jesus that's a doll figure. My own personal Jesus. Someone who's a lucky charm for me. Someone who's a trophy. In our chapter, David does successfully move the ark. He tries a second time. And look how many times he stops and goes, whoa, God, is this all right? Whoa, is this all right? Six steps and he stops. Not seven, six steps. Let me sacrifice some more to get this right. But verse 12, again, it's so mixed up. Verse 12, has somebody got that? Emma, could you read verse 12 to us? Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up Thank you. The little word in that that caught my attention was the so. How many of us here this morning are here because we're looking for God's blessing? I am. That's a good thing. But look at it in the context of this story. Is this manipulation of God or is this saying, I want God's justice, I want God's, the centrality of God in my kingdom. Look at that so. He sees the other family blessed, so he brings it to Jerusalem. Oh yes, he's reminded about the ark. I want that. Whatever you make of my interpretations and your thoughts as you read this passage, as the David, story of David unfolds, what is undeniable is that his power is growing. He's gone from being a forgotten shepherd boy to being a musician, to being a king, to being a mighty king who unifies the kingdom, brings enormous power together. Power tends to corrupt. All absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think we are all open to being corrupted by power in one way or another. Because I think that's what Adam and Eve, the story there was about. They wanted more. Because you say, I'm not a king. I don't have issues with power. I'm not wealthy. I'm not. It's about wanting more. Adam and Eve were given everything for a good life. Given every pleasure, every delight. And yet they wanted more. They wanted something else. They wanted greater power. They wanted to be more. They wanted to have more. They wanted to know more than was right. They were not content to be creatures. They wanted to be gods. And so for Adam and Eve, the will to power meant a rupture in their relationship with God. And the experience of community and dialogue with God was broken. And they hid from God. In the story of King Saul, we see someone obsessed with power, don't we? 
and that relationship with David is broken is because of that Saul's lust for power. Saul's lust for power also damages, destroys his relationship with Jonathan. And yet, sadly, as we read on, power has changed David also. What about us and power? If the theme is power this morning, the power of money, the power of money over us, the power of knowledge, we know things. Some people don't know that. The power that that affords, the power of title or of position, popularity, the strength and power of desire. I must have that. And then there's power that we do have. How do we use it in our workplace, in our relationships, to be destructive or creative? I think as Christians, we need to square up to the fact that our culture continually says, you need to be wanting more. That's what's screamed at us all the time. How do we respond as Christians? I think as God's people, we need to demonstrate each day that life is a gift. And God, thank you for the blessings of today, for those that I see and understand, and for those that yet I don't understand and I struggle with. I thank you for the gift of today. It's about loving the unlovable, not those that we can manipulate, but letting people be as God intended, not manipulating people. It's about self-control and not self-indulgence, David. Self-control is so marginalized, and yet it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, self-control. Think of the number of times that Jesus used self-control in his own ministry. How important that was. God knows that none of us are perfect. We all come with dirty hands and hearts. Our motives are so easily mixed. We can so easily delude ourselves. And yet the message of the passage this morning is that God loves us and wants to have relationship with us. God knows what we're like and says, yes, I know that, but I love you. I accept you. I love you. I want you to go on being changed for my sake and for in the name of my love. Let my spirit reshape your vision of my world. Let my spirit reshape your vision of my world. And let me root you in righteousness. Let me attune your desires that your passion may be for justice, for my justice, for my love, and for my kingdom. I'm heartened when I see Paul struggling with these things. And in Colossians, he says, how does God then look at us? If our hearts are so easily confused, God looks at us clothed in Christ's righteousness, right with God. Colossians, he writes, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace, for your acceptance, for your transformation. In your name, I can begin a new day. I've got a couple of slides as we have some music just for a, just for a minute. 
that maybe help us reflect, pick up one or two of the themes that I've shared this morning.